0: Hello and welcome to Under the Skin with me, Russell Brand. This week I spoke to David Runciman, author of How Democracy Ends and host of the Talking Politics podcast. He teaches politics and history at Cambridge University. We spoke about what the function of democracy is, the relationship between corporations and government, anarcho syndicalism, Steve Bannon and the rise of populism, Bernie Sanders and Corbyn, and a little bit of Brexit. Uh, if you've not signed up to the mailing list for Luminary, you should. Here is some information recorded on my phone. Hello. As you know, Under the Skin is going to be on a new and fantastic podcast platform, Luminary. To get three months of Under the Skin for free and to get all of the rest of Luminary's premium content, such as Trevor Noah and Lena Dunham and Caramo, then go to russellbrand.com and go on my mailing list scroll down at the bottom get on the mailing list and we'll send you an email and when the app launches on the 23rd of april you'll receive a code to get three months for free okay so i've negotiated that for you so do take advantage of it that's for everyone who's outside of the us go to russellbrand.com go down the bottom register now if you're in the us go to luminary.link forward slash russell okay luminary.link forward slash russell all the information's available here mentors is now out in the united states and canada as an audio book you can get it on your kindle or a hardback book go to russellbrand.com or go to amazon or go wherever you go to get books perhaps buy it from a person that runs their own bookstore are they a beatnik someone with an unusual piercing trying to fight against the machine, raging elegantly through literature while you're in that bookshop. Who knows? Perhaps you'll fall in love or you'll pick up a book of Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude and marvel at the fusion of the magic and the mundane. Or you might just buy mentors, as you've been instructed. Stop drifting off the rails. Stay on the narrow, tightrope of instruction that I am offering you. Here are some of your comments on Wendy Mandy. Shannon Mills go... More of you and Wendy, please. I could listen to you both forever. You actually couldn't because you and me and Wendy are all going to die. Unless, of course, we then go into some glorious, infinite circuit of talking and listening. Josh Overley, and um, thank you, Shannon, for that lovely comment. I didn't mean to sound ungrateful. Josh Overley, love this podcast so much. Fantastic story, information and energy from Wendy Mandy. Perfect for a long Sunday morning drive into the woods by myself. What did you do when you got there, Josh? a suspicious activity, a long drive into the woods. It's the kind of thing I expect to find in Peter Sutcliffe's diary. Um, I don't know why I'm attacking you. I love you. Elaine M Beck, I keep singing Wendy Mandy, Wendy Mandy, da da yeah, I keep doing that as well. Mr Pirate Brain, Russell, this was hands down, your best podcast, please can we have her back again, I really need to work on myself. Mr Pirate Brain, we will get Wendy Mandy back again. Thank you so much for these lovely comments. I'm in LA now and I'm doing some live shows, keep an eye on social media for that, developing Recovery Live, which I'm thinking about going on chat shows and calling a new religion that I've started. That should be a good way of framing it. (laughs) See, is that a mad thing to do? Well, that's not going to stop me, is it? Um, Check out my YouTube channel for more, we're calling them spiritual videos, really. It's just me saying what I reckon might be the solution to some quite complex and diverse psychological and social problems and also have a look at my latest book mentors out in america now and obviously in america and get it as an audio book as well if you want it plus still watch rebirth on netflix good bit of comedy why not if you want to get in touch with me on social media it's at rusty rockets hashtag under the skin or on instagram true russell brand true spelled t-r-e-w like the trues remember those glory glory days okay if you want to know more about the luminary thing go luminary.link forward slash Russell, for more information. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not a no, successful that, route. Yes. That's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told. And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the Skin. Welcome to Under the Friends. Skin. Yeah, David. What, what do you mean about generational uh, divide teaching at uh, Cambridge University? Where you're, uh, what are you a professor? I am, I am. I am a professor of politics. <laughs> so, Still so I meant to, by
1: that. Yeah, yeah, I meant to understand what I'm talking about. Yeah. Uh, so it's just that thing. So we now know, and I don't think we even. knew I didn't know this. So we're not going to talk about Brexit, right? But I didn't know before that vote that the the big divides were generational and educational. So if you look at how people voted, it wasn't. It wasn't class on the whole. It wasn't gender on the whole. It wasn't income. If you, if you had could ask two questions, how old are you? Did you go to university? Those would be better indicators of how people voted. So if you work in a university, you're a middle-aged, late middle-aged man, you're teaching 20-year-olds. You're Weirdly, even though it's a pretty cosseted place, you're on the front line of the two big political divides. And there's no question, people on the age of 30, they don't just kind of have different interests they see politics they see the future so radically differently than someone who grew up like I did sort of through the end of the 20th century even though they don't have that different like life experiences from me it just looks so different and and you you sense it all the time.
0: Do you think that there's an appetite for real systemic change among these people that you're teaching?
1: Yeah definitely there's an appetite for it there's also a sense that No one knows, you know, what the 10 years, 15 years ahead, what it's going to look like. So when I was a student, you could be radical about politics. You could be really fired up. You could be angry about injustice. But you had this feeling there was a kind of shape to it. And that if you thought of yourself, age 40, you you might think, I hope I'm not sort of, haven't changed my views by then or whatever. But you didn't think the whole surrounding architecture of it would just be different. I think if you're 20 now, you have a suspicion that it might be. Mm. And that, and I, I don't instinctively have that suspicion, but I think that's partly because I've been sort of attuned by my own background. I try and, try and open myself up to it. I genuinely try and think 10, 15 years ahead, it could be radically different. But I have to force myself to think that.
0: Are there any indicators that it will be different? For example, has serious change occurred anywhere uh, any real alternatives to democracy that are m- m- more fluid that, and that distribute power more rather than versions of democracy that are less fluid and concentrate so, power so not yet i mean that's part of the challenge here
1: mm. i mean there is there's definitely evidence that people at a local level where they have more direct opportunities to experiment in some cities in some countries there's a sort of radical experimental feeling to it, but nothing that's kind of scaled up, nothing that's gone national. You can't look at any established democracy anywhere in the world. Not only have they not changed, they look increasingly frozen. I mean, I think that's the real challenge. It's not just that, again, I think it's different from when I was a student, which is you took the system for granted, but the system actually was capable internally of changing. There would be big shifts in ideas and philosophies and the kind of people who were in charge. And now the systems look really stuck. I mean, I think they look more stuck than they look broken. So mm. people are trying to think around them. But it's really hard to see around them. It's really hard to see round representative democracy. It's this big looming 100 year story you've got to see around.
0: Do you think that that ossification is a response to uh, reduced power as in an increasingly globalized economy, it becomes the role of national governments to service the interests of these transnational uh, institutions. Yeah, definitely. I mean, definitely part
1: of it is a kind of increasing mismatch between
0: democracy, the great empowering
1: system, the thing, you know, people are told you have to vote, you have to take part because this is your opportunity to change things. The rhetoric of the politicians has to be that too. You, know, you don't say vote for me, I'm not gonna be able to change anything. And yet the reality is increasingly, I think, that it's hard. To, it's not just the, the scale of the issues is hard. So many institutions, political, non-political, kind of snare politics. But it's very, very hard for anyone to come along and say that, especially to say that and get elected. You know, Vote for me. I'm the one who understands how powerless I am.
0: Sounds quite appealing, actually. What though, to say that? <laughs> when you say it now, I think that if someone said that, I'd be interested in if someone said vote for me and i will demonstrate in real time the impotence (laughs) of an elected politician and how illegitimate and meaningless i mean it's definitely
1: true you often hear people say why why can't the politicians say to us it's hard you know like why do they why why won't they admit it's complicated actually i think they do admit that quite a lot but what they won't admit is that they're powerless that's much much harder for them to do i think
0: yeah, the limitations. It seems like it operates on several levels. Like for from perhaps it became more clear, although it, it, this must have been the case since ever since power has operated, it became more clear that we were dealing with spin doctors and yeah, managing sure. narratives and stories. And now I feel like that when we see political figures engaging publicly that I almost want to go, are you all right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't feel like, they're, like that they're able to be human anymore. Or when you see sort of a relatively high politician resign, like Nick Clegg, I remember thinking that the, n- the next day he looked like he'd been unplugged from some sort of toxic device that prevented him from making proper eye I mean, contact. you
1: see it with, so, Theresa May is interesting because you see that like if anyone has demonstrated a kind of, powerlessness it's her and it has attracted sympathy when you talk to people they sympathize with her on a human level Mm -hmm. I mean I don't know if you and even like angry young students there's a sort of sympathy it's quite hard not to sympathize with her and at the same time there's this kind of fury and frustration with her inability to get things done but there's something about her she's almost I suspect in the future she's going to symbolize something if we are moving to something else that if if ever there was a politician who was the conventional sort of 20th century politician who's just hit the limits of what you can do and people are like oh at the same time as yeah wanting yeah to, w- I feel, wanting to really
0: yeah give her a hard time yeah on a human level do you, do uh, you sympathize with I that? completely i sort of think yeah. are you, are you like god yeah. you must be exhausted yeah, yeah all your this. voice You're has okay. gone again yeah do you, Get a blanket for heaven's (laughs) sake. So, the politician, the
1: blanket that's the other one that you could,
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah, that's what I feel like. So, um, okay, so if you like in your position uh, as a a professor at Cambridge, where you, as you put it, you're on the front line dealing with young, I mean, front line, it sounds a bit you know what I mean, right? It's it's not the the actual front line, (laughs) it's just uh. Yeah, I get you. <laughs> I mean, you're experiencing that disjunct between, like, I, I recognise what you're saying. That in the sort of seventies and eighties, and even you know, round even up to the Occupy movement, you'd say, "I oh, want what needs to happen." Is these existing institutions need to listen more to ordinary people? Now, what it feels like is these institutions are uh, irrelevant, and we need to establish new ways of organising power and managing society, and. That's increasingly, you know, in my own limited research, which essentially amounts to sitting across to people who know more than me, such as yourself, across this table. uh, Like people are saying, new systems are beginning to emerge, new ideas are beginning to emerge, and and many of the things that we're like like uh, uh, assessing as a a problem are merely symptoms, whether it's the emergence of the alt-right you know five years ago voter apathy or whatever it is it's these are understandable reactions we can now recognise to political systems that are not capable of responding to to people's requirements. So um, maybe we should do a bit more about that because you have written loads of books, ha- loads of books that like it might be good to get a pricey on. So we set things out before moving on to the inevitable bit where I say things like, "And how's anarcho syndicalism going to replace this? And what's the role of spirituality and community?" Yeah, we will get there. Yeah, we'll get there. But let's do a little bit more on uh, like say. So, um, you, is How Democracy Ends your most recent book? Yeah. Um, um, th- th- give me, and uh, like, I've read some of it. Well, tell me, though, what it's about.
1: So, it is partly a reaction against all the other books with similar titles, which say that we've got to remember how democracy ended in the past. The, you know, the shorthand version of it is there are lots of books out there saying the worst case scenario here is we're going to rerun the 1930s. Like, the thing that we should be frightened of is fascism. I agree we should be frightened of fascism, it's a frightening thing. I don't think we're rerunning the 1930s. I think the question about how democracy ends is a question about the future, and almost everyone sees it as a question about the past. So it's it's natural, what human beings do is, uh, if you're lost, you look for something familiar. Mm. So we look for the death of democracy because in the 30s, the fascists took over, you get a military dictatorship. We see it around the world, You know, the generals take over, or you get some strong man who suspends the rule of law. And the basic argument in my book is that that may be true still in some places around the world, maybe many, but not for us. By us, I mean mature Western democracies. We're nothing like that anymore. We're completely different kinds of society. So we have these institutions that go all the way back to the 30s, but we're living in a completely different world. Um, we're much older. So the the breakdown of democracy in the past tended to happen in places both where the democracy was young. So in the 1930s, I I don't think you can date what we call democracy much further than 100 years back. Like Everyone has to have the vote for a start, men and women. So in the 30s, these institutions were like a decade old. Um, And then the people who lived in these societies were young too. So these were mainly societies of young people, including lots of young men. So we've now got misfiring democracies in societies where the institutions are 100 years old, So they're old, they're tired, they're stuck in their ways. I say it's like a midlife crisis, kind of midlife crisis if you're quite old. And the people are old. These are societies where most people are middle-aged or older. You go back 100 years, Britain, America, were societies of children and and young people. So the the median age, the age above which, 50% above, 50% below. 1930s America was 24, 25. So half of everyone in america was either a child or a young adult it's now 40 and although life expectancy in america's there are problems around that but you know there are more old people there are 20% plus people over 65 now it used to be below 5% you cannot you know you get fascism in societies of angry young men we've got lots of angry young men but we've got a lot more angry old people and i'm not saying i know how it's going to go but it's not going to be a playing out of the past we're older, we're richer, we're healthier, we're more networked. We're still very unequal. We're tired. We're we're used to this way of doing politics. It's a. It's not meant to be an optimistic or a pessimistic book. It's meant to say if democracy is going to go wrong, do not think it's going to repeat. It's just not.
0: There's no. Reason really to assume I'm sure there are patterns in history of course but like it's yeah unlikely that we would revisit such a, a relatively recent period when as you say conditions have altered quite radically just the base conditions and that makes sense to me what you're saying about that you would need a, a large population of angry young men although I suppose that's one of the some of the vivid images of uh, n- new nationalistic sure politics that like that chimes with that
1: yeah and that's part of the issue here is is that you can get these images and it's really uncanny like uh, it looks the same frankly the politicians sound the same I'm, I'm not denying for a moment that you know, the rhetoric of authoritarian politics now sounds uncannily like the worst rhetoric of the 30s you know and, and we, we are revisiting the racism the anti-semitism the, the you know the suspicion of outsiders the suspicion of experts all of that But if you're doing it against these completely different background conditions.
0: Can't have the same result. And
1: and (laughs) you you say, which I'm sure is true, that history doesn't repeat. And yet there are these books being written by really smart historians where you haven't got anything else to go on because the future is this kind of unknowable thing. I think it's more unknowable than it used to be. I think if thinking 20 years ahead is harder than it was even 20 years ago, you're more and more dependent on the past to kind of anchor where you are. And so the argument of my book is to try and, it's a sort of argument about political imagination. Mm. What if we started from the assumption, the common sense assumption, it's not gonna repeat, but it might be in real trouble. Mm. We need to open our minds up to the thought that the future could be something we haven't even begun to consider.
0: What uh, what type of prognosis or what kind of speculations do you offer?
1: So there is definitely a possibility that there is, again, which is, wasn't really on people's radar 10 or 15 years ago, that there is a, a workable alternative to democratic politics which is the Chinese system. Now the Ch- not, it, it probably wouldn't work for a society like ours because we've got all these entrenched institutions and beliefs. But you know, something that's potentially gonna spread quite widely and is quite possibly quite durable and it's not democratic. I mean it has democratic bits to it but it's basically a, an authoritarian system anchored to a view of capitalism that even 10, 15 years ago, there was this thought that there weren't any alternatives because the alternatives had to be these kind of ideological alternatives, communism or whatever it was, and all those ideas were kind of played out. And now we're seeing, well, you could have a kind of pragmatic, I mean, they call themselves communists, but they're not. You can have a pragmatic alternative, which is sort of technocratic expertise plus authoritarian control, plus possibly the use of new technology to deliver results and also to monitor citizens and that we shouldn't assume that that might not outlast us no that's that's the bleak of you i mean i'm and i'm not and and one of the ironies of it is that we tend to think that if there's going to be an alternative people in our society have to be advocating it you know there were there still are people who want us to be communist whatever and through the 20th century history of democracy there was always the thought that democratic societies were channeled were challenged by big ideas that that some people were pushing from inside those societies. Almost no one in Britain or America is pushing that we should adopt the Chinese
0: system. That's interesting, isn't it? Because I sort of state authoritarianism allied with capitalism is the most successful model like that's what, now currently that's what's working best so it's surprising that no one is saying hey why don't we do a version of this we'll be intro-. I suppose it's because it sounds so awful like, you know, you, if you grow into it, like, right, we had communism, now we're doing this thing where you get more phones. <laughs> you know, like, okay, yeah. cool, more yeah, yeah. phones than we used to have, that's right. And before that, you were peasants. And, before- and
1: it's weird, in a way, the only people you hear advocating it are the ones. So, you, you know, I know people who are really worried about climate, say, and really frustrated with Western democracy and its inability to grip this issue. And then they go to China and they see this authoritarian, technocratic system doing really decisive things not consulting because you don't have to consult you know not being sort of subject to electoral cycles and big public opinion consultations and there is you, you see people come back with this kind of look in their eye which is oh, I've seen you know a way you could do this which is you just do it and this, I don't know. I never know what I think when well, I like see of, that. Well, like China, like
0: for example, trans uh, like started to use green energy, yeah. and, like, and they're just well, we're doing that. Yeah, we're going to
1: do, and we're going to do these things on a, on a scale that it would be impossible in a democracy because you yeah. just you know, we think we roll something out, it takes us twenty years. They just do it.
0: Yeah, but uh, like, what the suggestion is, David, that, that that's not because of the opposition of the populace that's corporate opposition and you need only take this sort of anecdotal example of China's relationship with tech companies is more adversarial than any uh, you know western nation would dare to have you know you wouldn't have England or France or America saying Google better not try this and Facebook better not try that.
1: But the Chinese have their own versions of Google and Facebook and, and, that, and that relationship with the state is frighteningly close. I mean that's the thing so yeah there's this kind of adversarial relationship with the the Western or the, the marketized version of this.
0: It's an odd permutation of the leftist idea that the only oppositional force to corporate power can be state power, isn't it? That like, you know, when I spoke to say sort of like David Harvey and I said like, you know, why do we have to have some sort of centralized state power to some parental state power? And he seem to believe that without regulation the forces of globalisation and corporatism would crush the, the populace but like when you brought up the example of China as an alternative to the kind of democracies we're familiar with obviously naive fool that I am I was imagining the first thing you'd say is well I imagine that we'll have democracies where power is a lot closer to the people that are governed by Yeah, I'm coming it. to that you're working towards that I mean, I mean, so you're just teasing were... me with the dark dragon yeah. so forces think, of China You know, I think you have to, take, saying, yeah, I think
1: you have to take seriously that there is out there Mm. a real alternative and it's it is scary and one of the reasons it's scary is that in that system state power is basically merging with that form of corporate power so if we want an alternative the Chinese is a sort of potentially a morality tale about the dangers of a, a really powerful state that that actually does try and take this technology seriously but there are much more radical alternatives too. So there's a kind of big looming real world alternative. And then there are all these bubbling alternatives within the West and also sort of around the world, like I say, at at city level, that, that use this technology not to kind of merge with state power, but ideally to empower people and give people some more direct control over their lives. And that's bound to grow. I mean, there's there's no question that this technology is going to empower people in ways we haven't even thought about yet. But between these two, so you've got you know, one big bad thing out there, potentially, you've got all sorts of bubbling experiment going on. But the thing that's in between them, which is the, the Western democratic state is not going away. That's the big challenge, right? So it's almost like, we've got to think round this thing. And we also got to take seriously that it's not just going to wither away. It's not, it doesn't show any signs of giving up it's stuck it's frozen but it's not it's not giving up the ghost Mm. and that's the big challenge i think to think sort of through it and round it
0: but when you talk about these 20 year olds that you are involved in the education of it's sort of for me it seems conceivable that within a generation there could be significant change because if people if like a large number of educated people believe that different things are possible then when they're presented with those alternatives they won't just instinctively say no this isn't possible that, that you know capitalism's the best of all the worst alternatives you know they won't just default to those uh, uh, to the stasis that's determined defined for the last sort of 50 60 years they're open to these kind of possibilities I definitely think that they're open
1: um, and I definitely think they also you know the other irony of being yeah, other irony of being twenty now is if you live in a you know, if you're going to Cambridge University, you're a sort of relatively speaking, affluent person. Your life expectancy, I mean, who knows what it is, right? I mean who knows what how long ahead you you should be thinking? Could be hundred and twenty, could be hundred and fifty, God knows what it is. Mm-hmm. So you've got this kind of enormous arc of a life ahead of you in which it's really hard to think even fifteen, twenty years ahead. And both personally, thinking about a career or a kind of, you know, a way of life that you want to adopt, all the things that, when I was 20, that, that the shape of a life looked familiar, that you, you know, even life expectancy, you just had a kind of 20 to 70 period, which, when you did stuff, and now, I think that's that's all open too, so it's kind of longer and shorter at the same time. On the one hand, you could think, I might be alive in the next century, if you're 20 now, And on the other hand, you think, I can't imagine the next decade, really. I mean, the 2030s, that's really hard to imagine. I haven't got that mindset because I'm not 20, but I imagine if you did, the possibility of quite soon having a really radically different imagination about politics is real.
0: I wonder how significant a proportion of the population educated 20-year-olds are. Oh, there's probably, I would imagine, a little bit of a decline, isn't there, in people going to universities? It feels to me like... It's
1: leveled off, but it's still so much higher than it was. Really? So even 50 years ago, it was between 1% and 2% of British people went to university, which is why it wasn't a divide in our politics because there weren't any university... Educa- I mean, they were doing the politics, but they weren't a division in the electorate because there weren't enough of them. Mm. And now... You know, then it went up to about 15, 20% through the 80s. And now, among the under 40s, it's about 45%. So it's become this big divide, a kind of 50-50 divide. That's why I said at the beginning, you've got the educational divide and the generational divide. And you know, the young people I teach are on one side of the generational divide, but then... You know, they're also on the other side of the educational divide. I mean, they and me are in the same position educationally and there's a 50 plus percent of the population, more among older people, who don't seem to share whatever it is that happens at university that gives people a certain set of attitudes. I mean, we don't know enough, actually, about what it is. Why why should a university education be the big determinant of how you vote on Brexit? But it was.
0: Possibly you feel more equipped to deal with, I, I mean in a sense it's a, a conservative position to vote to remain in a very literal way. You want it's the things status to, quo position, yeah. yeah. And perhaps you feel more comfortable with that if you're in a position, that, like, you don't feel necessarily the rage, anger, disappointment uh, fury, impotence that you might feel you know that and that the, that if you've been if you're not economically invited to the party or geographically you know or culturally invited to the party maybe that's what it maybe that's what it feels like maybe that's what it feels like
1: because i think you know another thing that's different about now though there isn't a historical parallel for it is so we have you know we have a parliament that is not quite universally but close to it being an entry requirement that you have to have been to university. It's 90% plus of all MPs have been to university. It's the same in American politics. Every senator in the United States has been to college. Every governor has been to college. So it's kind of like, it's a job requirement. Mm. And then you've got a population, half of the population are like that too, among the younger group, and the other half aren't. And I think both groups have a kind of reason to be really frustrated. So if if you're in the educated lot, you look at the politicians and think, well, they're no different from us. Once upon a time when very few people had that kind of education, there was this sense that politicians were a genuine elite, for better or worse, and now you look at them and they're just like large sections of the population. And then there's another group who feel doubly excluded because they're nothing like them, and then they've got that whole group of electors who are kind of in the same boat as them. And so you could say there's a reason for both the educated and the people who haven't had a university educated education to think this system doesn't work for me. One lot because we're no different from the politicians and the other lot because there are no one, there's no one like us among the politicians.
0: Did you see Steve Bannon addressing the Oxford union? And yet you call yourself an educated man. I do. No. <laughs> no, Steve Bannon. I'm sure I could watch it on YouTube. Yeah, right? that's where I watched it. No, like, uh, like I was astonished because I, you know, I, it was about an hour in before I stopped nodding. <laughs> like, yeah, that's true. Yeah. I right, yeah. agree with that. He does. It's a, I mean, it's a, a slow build. To it's the an incredible payoff. turn. <laughs> yeah. Like that's, he didn't even do the payoff actually. he never says a bit where you go, Oh, right. Uh, so who do we blame? You know, like it's, it starts off with this brilliant, um, uh, what do I want to say? Dissection of the financial crisis and a meeting between Obama and these sort of wall street heads and how they decide and determine to, you know, to set up quantitative easing and all this kind of stuff. He's spat, he's like wet from the rain. You can hear the people, the protesters, chanting outside in the streets. Steve Bannon, for those of you who don't know, sort of a, one of the sort of key uh, figures in their election and advisory of the Donald Trump and sort of someone who said that Tom, Tommy Robinson is the backbone of this country. Anyway, so like, um, You know, he's sort of wet from the rain, the chanting's outside, and he says, No, you know, like to this, you know, room full of uh, Oxford undergraduates, you know, you're never going to own your homes. You're never going to own your homes. And, and like, because the, you know, the elites have got it sewn up. And like, I can't do justice to what that man did in that room, wet from the rain, and sort of, sort of, kind of, what do I want to say, committed and determined against the chants outside. And the, One thing he said that uh, I'd like you to uh, help me to uh, analyse is he said, the future, he says, is populist. Populism is coming. All we're discussing is whether or not it's right-wing populism or left-wing populism. Now, like I mean, of course, there's many, many possible alternatives. But something about this idea of populism struck me as interesting. For One thing, David, because um, I feel that I understand the resurgence of nationalism when people feel that globalization has taken away their power, the corporations have taken away the power and the more visceral threat of immigration, I get that, and I also see how um, populism um, would become, like, in an age of mass communication... Uh, and, and an age where there's so much mistrust of the media and so much mistrust of institutions. And people do have access to podcasts and YouTube and can watch people that sound a lot more like them. That is, uh, And even they don't sound like them seem to be expressing the same emotion as them. The sort of the resonance of hearing angry people when you're angry seems to be effective. Um, and some, when he said that about populism, I think he's right. And we should be thinking of how do we build a progressive, liberal, left wing populism effective and interested in redistribution of wealth, in genuine new ideas, in accepting that the agitated people that would, you know, the Brexit people that would vote for Brexit, that, that they have real and genuine concerns that need to be addressed.
1: Mm. And I need to, yeah <laughs> I mean
0: i so I, I I don't think
1: I agree that the future is necessarily populism, and I think there is in populism as it is currently now, this kind of basic problem, which is you know, populism is is trying to re- recapture democracy and deliver for the people who feel excluded through all of the existing institutions. So the populists are not coming along, they're not revolutionaries, they're not They're not actually anti-democrats. You know, it's all in the name of the people. They're trying to win elections. I mean, what's Steve Bannon doing? He's just going around the world as an election consultant trying to get you know, the league elected in Italy and he's, he's offering his services to people who are trying to win elections. So there's still this kind of, you know, the future's this potentially radically different thing but it's gonna be channeled through the existing institutions. And the big threats to democracy in the past were we're going to tear the institutions down. Donald Trump... Communism and fascism. Yeah, yeah. Trump is not threatening to tear. I mean, he's potentially attacking some of the sort of liberal pillars, but he's not threatening to abolish any of the basic structures of democratic politics. He's going to recapture them from the people who stole them from the people. So the liberal version of that, um, in a way, it ought to be possible because you're defending the institutions, but you're sort of offering something fresh for the people who are frustrated and angry. But it's also just a version of the problem all populists have. I mean, I think the thing that really strikes me about contemporary politics is people are so angry, people are doing some pretty radical things on the left and on the right, but the institutions aren't changing at all. And people aren't really even talking much about changing the institutions. I mean, there's still this underlying assumption on left and on right that the next election will be the key event that will kind of get us wherever wherever we want to go. And we know that's not true, because we've been through a lot of these elections. And you get these people elected, and then you've got these institutions which are tired, and they're kind of stuck, they're in a rut, and you put your radical populist in that framework. And in some places, they can start to undo the institutions, but in most places, they just increase that feeling of paralysis.
0: Mm, Yeah, the transcendent trends continue unabated throughout the sort of vacillation between leftist or rightist. Yeah, and actually one of the
1: themes in my book is that we could go on quite a long time like this. So there's always that feeling that we can't carry on like this, it's gonna break. You know, That that at some point, again, because we think of the past, democracy will just sort of snap in two or someone will come along and either kill it or rescue it. It's this sort of either or, we're gonna be saved or we're gonna be doomed. I think we could carry on waiting for the next election for 20 or 30 years. Um, because as soon as one election's finished and people are frustrated and angry, they're waiting for the next one. Yeah. And you know, what's the point at which people will say, we need to stop waiting for the populist electoral saviour and actually completely change the way we do this politics, you know, make it more consultative deliberative direct whatever make it more decentralized make it more local make it more international but we don't we're still in that phase which would be completely recognizable to someone 50 years ago where we just think it gets channeled through quite a narrow set of institutions parliaments electoral cycles and the populists are playing that game so unless Steve Bannon means but if you look at what he's doing trying to get his guys and they're all guys I think trying to get his guys elected he's not breaking the mold at all
0: yeah you're sort of right because actually what he he cited as the left-wing populists were Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn so he wasn't saying like some mavericks who are operating in sort of bandit masks and and you know
1: I know that many of the people the young people are thinking most radically about politics are also waiting for Bernie waiting for Jeremy um which I think is a mistake why because I think even if they win what you should be doing now is not thinking about who's going to come and save us and who's going to come and save us through this system but why is this system over the last generation just kind of ground itself down in this sort of ever smaller and smaller circles of not getting things done and yeah it's possible it is possible that Bernie Sanders could become president of the United States and find a magic wand that gets all the institutions working again but I don't I don't believe it
0: Nor do I I completely agree with you and what I feel just then uh, is that when you sort of say, is democracy working? It depends what the objectives of democracy are. It depends if the objectives of de- democracy are what we sort of loosely interpret them to be to distribute power and to demonstrate the will of the people. If we for a moment discard that as the intention of democracy and say that the function of democracy is to create a veneer of interaction between power and the population while ensuring that the interests of the powerful are never interrupted, then democracy is working extremely well because that is what it's doing and i think you're right and i don't i don't you know i don't see examples of where democracy is like right we're going to step in and control the interests of the power that never ever happens you never see that happen it's that's not a story that i'm familiar with so i think so i think you never see it happen
1: with this sort of set of institutions and ways of doing politics which have become to be called democracy so Mm. we've we've come to call democracy something which is a pretty recent phenomenon um you know it has various building blocks so it has political parties often mainstream political parties and some systems center left center right or you know a broader spectrum but professional political parties professional politicians and party organizers mass media communication universal franchise so everyone gets the vote so voting is the most important thing and voting is really important i'm just not sure it's always the be all and end all of democracy a welfare state you know a certain kind of system of redistribution which is moderated in various ways the rule of law all of that that whole package and we call that democracy that is at most in one or two places 100 years old but in most places it's barely a generation old you know even in spain or greece or places like that it's a really yeah exactly it's a really contingent relatively young thing and then there's this thing called democracy which is a sort of 2000 plus year story which is the basic idea you know that human beings are equal that all human beings in some way are capable of deciding their own fate that long story so i think we could be at the end of the short story Yes. i mean why not it's uh if something's 40 or 50 years old there's a fair chance it's not got that many more decades left in it it's you know it's unlikely to be going to go on for another two thousand years but the long story it's really unlikely we're at the end of that story and yet our mindset is that the short story is the whole story and i think that's a big big problem
0: you're quite right i mean in a sense it's a return to those more pure ideals that's required uh, you know a- an actual democracy that is uh, uh, facilitates the requirements of a large number of people. Now, um, when I talk up, uh, talk about one of uh, a subject around which I know little beyond the name of it, anarcho syndicalism. <laughs> I feel like you know, I'm not going to claim to be an expert <laughs> either. But it comes up a lot because what I feel like I mean, and you know, dictionaries are available, so is the internet. So I don't know why I've become arrested at this point by uh, anarcho syndicalism. Is that um, Institutions, communities, organisations more manageable in size, like, you know, for example, a school or a not even a county, a borough could be democratically run by the people that live stroke work there. Clearly, you know, from talking to sort of I don't, uh, sort of like tech futurists such as Yuval Noah Harari, we start to understand, oh, wow, the job market's going to change. And possibly that's a, a good thing. Perhaps it would be a good time to start considering that the value of human beings may reach beyond the way they can economically contribute to a society. You know, so w- do you feel that we could be promoting ideas of r- cooperative democracy you know like confederacies of smaller groups challenging the state power as the uh, the centripetal force in the way that we see politics
1: so i do but i think i'm probably more skeptical than you about some of it um i think one of the challenges is that politics always gets presented as kind of tends to be sort of either or. Couldn't we do this rather than that? Can our democracy be more really democratic rather than less? And the future is probably both ways. I mean, I think that the future is probably in some respects going to be less democratic than it is now for everyone, for sort of harari like reasons, you know, in, in a sort of world controlled by who owns the data. It's quite hard to imagine some fundamental forces in our lives being subject to democratic control. I don't think there's ever going to be democratic control of the architecture of the internet. I mean, the internet is going to be run by small groups of people who have forms of technical knowledge. And at the same time, that internet, that kind of web of relationships, could be radically empowering democracy in some places. And a future where people where they live have much more control over their lives and get a say in how they make decisions about the things that affect them all It's definitely possible and it probably goes along with a future where a kind of range of you know, broader umbrella arrangements are just beyond us completely almost and one of the questions we have to face is are we willing to make that trade-off you know, we could cling on to the nation state because the nation state is still a thing that might you know, give us some hold over the the big international architecture. But it's possible that by clinging on to the nation state, we don't allow these more you know, community based forms of democracy to thrive. I just think there's a there's a kind of dilemma out there that we're going to have to face, which is if the package, the democratic package isn't working, are we willing to give up on some of it to Really empower other bits of it. I don't think we're going to get a future where we turn that package into a genuine democracy all the way through.
0: In a way, what you're saying is not as radical or disheartening as it might initially. No, it's not. Seem and it's not meant to be disheartening because it's probably already happening. Because the part of the disillusionment and disenfranchisement that many people feel is we're not, we've got no power anyway. We're not having any impact on. I'm not able to affect my life. You know. So, so the idea of yielding to a sort of power to sort of i suppose you mean by that as sort of what some kind of centralized and authoritative institution that umbrellas smaller confederacies yeah. of more I think, democratic i
1: think that the trend to what's sometimes called technocracy but the idea that technocracy yeah that sort what of which is, is so technocracy is not um being ruled by the smartest people or the people who know stuff and that I think that is meant to be called epistocracy, which is like ruled by the knowledge. Know, yeah, exactly, ruled by the knowers. And I've, there were real issues with that too, because I don't think we know who knows stuff. But technocracy is kind of ruled by the engineers, basically, the people who built the system. You know, the financial system is sufficiently complicated now that, on the whole, it's not run by the people who know better than us, but the people who know how it was built, because they can. You know, they know which are the levers doesn't mean that they know what's good for us. It doesn't mean that they know what will make us happy. But, you know, they're like the plumbers, that they're the ones who actually know where the faults are. I think that trend is inexorably going to continue in an increasingly complex and technologically interdependent world. And, And we could try and resist it through the nation state by trying to elect populists who say, you know, enough of the experts, enough of the people who... And that's one route. We, this is sort of where we are at the moment. Or we could, at some level, accept it's bound to be part of our future and ask the question, what in that world would be really, genuinely empowering for us? And I suspect it's not national politics. I suspect it's not party politics. I suspect it's not having professional politicians take decisions for us. I suspect it is some form of community democracy.
0: Yes, because I I think if you invite people to consider what is it that our lives are affected by, what is it that you want control of, influence over, Mm -hmm. you know, it's even something as, as I've previously said, visceral as immigration is... (laughs) I would say broadly irrelevant if you, in fact, had control over what you did on a daily basis, the way that your family's time was spent. Like, that, that, that those are kind of these for me. Don't the conversation has migrated away from practical life and has become this ideological life of well, I don't like that, I don't agree with that. I intuit that vote in this way means an expression of this thing rather than a kind of no. I, when I I wake up at eight on a monday i want to do that and then by tuesday i want to be doing that people don't i think that's been off the agenda for so long the idea that we could have lives that are grounded in community and leisure and meaningful interaction and self-betterment and knowledge and education and learning more about ourselves and one another like sort of utopian visions but sort of perhaps locally practiced i feel that That's not something that people consider. Now, when um, at least um, when momentary challenges have appeared to the to the status quo, I mean, in the form of, say, Syriza or Podemos, that in a sense, it supports what you've been saying so far, David, in that they're quite easily subsumed into pre-existing systems. Those, like, by collaborating with those systems, by trying to operate within them, parties such as Syriza or Podemos that say, like, hold on a minute, we're gonna give a voice to the people, I'm a different type of politician, look, I've got long hair. I'm handsome, look, for example. You know, those they are quickly devoured by the fanged vagina of the dark mother democracy. <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I mean,
1: uh, so the bit I'd object to is not that last bit. It's the I don't think you can say it's collab. You know, they become sort of collaborators with this system. I just think genuinely, across the board, these institutions now that they are so well established, and again, it's a difference between what this might have been like earlier in the twentieth century and what it's like now. It's incredibly hard for any politicians once they start being in the vote-winning business. Because there's so much that goes around it now. There are so many well-established ways of doing politics that it's incredibly hard to break that even the most radical voices, they just find what all politicians find, which is you're not in control very quickly. You
0: will get votes there saying that. You'll have to say that while you're there. Yeah,
1: and it's not even just sort of, you know, that they'll be some sort of spin doctor will take them in hand and beat the radicalism out of them. It's it's just that... uh, with the best intentions, Saritza, Podemos, all of them, they're being funneled through this narrow sort of gap and that out the other side is meant to come an alternative future and, and you never really get through with that politics. I think that's where we are at the moment and it's really hard, really hard for any politician to think outside of that. I think anyone who who kind of does politics at the national level just... the the sort of brain space isn't there to think round the other side of the institutions. You just go through them. And once you go through them, you're in them and you don't come out the other side.
0: Yanis Varoufakis, when I spoke to him on this podcast, he explained it as like, that. he goes, if you are the german finance minister you have the power of your role that is your power and that role's power is sort of ring fenced you can't suddenly go i'm (laughs) gonna tear this up or kick that over you do what the german financial minister yeah i mean i think
1: his book adults in the room is the best sort of primer as to what it what it's like to kind of go in with those intentions and to have them out of you
0: because they say well now if you do this this will happen. and in the end if you are an idealist it's like all oh, right yeah. and after he
1: was only there for six months i mean that was how long it took and he quit rather than yeah whereas his boss
0: and isn't his general still feeling there. that his boss sort of you know like well, i'll try and work with the system from within and,
1: and the imf have just praised greece as the new poster child for what you can do if you tough it out they're saying greece is now back on track Prosperity's around the corner yeah, who's like track you, you gave me a look there. <laughs> uh, no, no, I, it's, uh, uh, I don't know. But it's yeah, as, yeah, whatever the worst case scenario was. And again, that's part of the challenge. So with Greece, and I actually write about Greece in my book. Um, you know, all these fears that Greece is where democracy was going to break. You know, Greece has got a fascist party, an old fashioned fascist party in Parliament, Golden Dawn.
0: Always got quite nice names
1: yeah golden Golden dawn Dawn. sounds
0: like okay what what do you believe in well it's pretty bleak
1: and and lots of young people vote for golden dawn but there just aren't any young people in greece they
0: might not have researched the policies they might just thought well it sounds like a breakfast cereal (laughs) they've
1: channeled the anger too but greece didn't break um it's sort of back quote unquote on track and that's the goal you know to hold this thing together but i don't think it was ever going to break i don't i don't think contemporary greece which is a pretty so it's a very elderly society It's one of the oldest societies on earth the median age, that I think, is forty-seven now. It's basically a pensioner society. People have stopped having kids. It's rich Greece now.
0: You think and it's very significant? The old uh, median age. Yeah, I really think it matters. I know because you're always mentioning it. Twice. Like, why is Twice. that? <laughs> it's, three, it's actually three times. It's okay, already times. got a
1: file. <laughs> okay, you can cut at least two. <laughs> no, no,
0: I like it, but I just want to know. So I think it's, it's think one it of those. It's us? one of those
1: sort of statistics. So p- partly, it's quite simple because it's mm. just sort of you know half above, 50, half half below. And when it moves 40 plus, so you've got societies where, apart from anything else, if the voting age is 18, the old are going to outvote the young every time. Mm. And the view of democracy till about 10 years ago was if all the young bothered to get out of bed and vote, they would win. Because it's always been assumed somehow there are more young people than old people. And that was always true. I mean, it's hard, I think, anyone who was alive before now to imagine a society where there are more old people than young people. And that would only be possible if, if we stopped having children, which we have yeah. in, lots, in lots of places.
0: Keep the old alive. Don't have any more kids.
1: Yeah, keep the immigrants out. And Bops wait, wait for the robots. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the that's the Japanese model of the future, right? That's right. a, a coming, possible coming version of democracy. And I What's think- the one? So wait for the robots. Wait for the robots. Because yeah. you, you know, the older the society gets, the more need on the robots. whole intolerant of immigration is. Um, not having any kids. So, so who's going to replace the twenty somethings, the robots? So that yeah, there's no historical parallel for that, and it's mm. you know, it's a completely sort of slavery. What for
0: unpaid labour? Yeah,
1: there's that, but there isn't the kind of we're dying out because. We're getting older, we can keep ourselves alive, which we can now for a long, long time. More or less stopped having kids. Still doing this thing called democracy, where if there are more of you, you win. So there are more and more of these older people. Mm-hmm. And if you were young, you've got good reason to suspect that the system is stacked against you now. And we see it, right? that You can't explain Brexit or Trump or anything without knowing that the old can now outvote the young. So even if all the young people voted, they all got out of bed, all the students. They kind of did last time almost show up and vote, they lose. Now this never used to be true, it is true now. And I think when you see these societies and think, well now half of people, and that means way more than half of voters, way more than half, are in what we would call the middle-aged or elderly bracket. It's a totally different ballgame.
0: My sense, and perhaps I I feel like I'm Uh, picking this up more broadly is that both Brexit and Trump were out of line with inverted commas what the establishment anticipated and wanted. I mean in Brexit you know Cameron and the leaders of the other party sort of of, campaigned for Remain so in a way these sort of older people, uneducated people it it kind of, they did deliver a a shock. Yeah. Yeah.
1: They did. Yeah. Um, and it's a different kind of shock. So it's the unfamiliar shock, which is there are these majorities out there, and in a democracy, if there are more of you, you know, the majority is still the thing. But it was thought that the quote-unquote establishment could kind of channel these things because that the fundamental divisions were party divisions and that the, you know, there's a famous, line: in the end, the party decides. It turns out the party doesn't decide. If education and age are the big divisions, we don't have a party of the university educated. I mean maybe Labour is that I don't know but I don't think it is we maybe the Tories are the party of the old but they mm-hmm. don't sell themselves as that they don't say you know, they don't have a kind of old person as their symbol <laughs> and yet that's the <laughs> if that's the division these these established parties they don't know how to manage it like the big divides cut across what the established you know, the traditional order is which is Left has a go, right has a go. Yeah. This group of posh people has a go, but they're leftish. This group of educated posh people have a go, they're rightish. So now, what if that whole group, the political class, discovers there is a majority out there that's had enough?
0: The taxonomies have shifted around the incumbent structures. The lines have altered, uh, as you were saying, and it. It's possible that I suppose something that's perhaps a um, foreboding about uh, sort of you know populism, as it were, is the possibility for an entirely new type of political figure to enter the or a political movement rather than figure that, that's not sanctioned and is potentially unappealing to the establishment. Yeah it
1: could happen i mean it's you know the the one really successful example because after all trump won by taking over the republican party He didn't invent a new party yeah the the, the one person in western democracy who's invented a new party from scratch taken over the whole thing is macron in france who's the most conventional wow educated educated career politician type Know, he's completely recognised. He's... he's he's everything that you thought was the establishment, and he's the only one who's. I mean, it's true in younger democracies and in other parts of the world where, in a way, it's easier to kind of kick over the established parties. But in places where those parties are really entrenched, left, right, Italy, it's happening now too, up to a point. Um, yeah, what like five star? Five star. Another bunch of educated people, but yeah, and also the league, the. I mean, there's a government in Italy now, which is clearly not the conventional establishment government. But it's, it's still coming from the conventional places. I mean, it's still, yeah, so Farage and Trump, these are not um, your conventional politicians. But Farage has never got close to power. And Trump only did it by taking over. The only, the only institution that could get Trump to the presidency was the Republican Party. There's no way he could
0: have become president running as Donald Trump and the kind of the machine that that he sat in is the conventional machine the utensils are the conventional utensils
1: yeah he's playing it slightly differently so he did it by using twitter and so on to kind of he didn't need to raise so much money because he worked out if you just said outrageous things you get all the coverage anyway And, and he's skillful at certain things that the established politicians didn't work out how to do but most people who voted for him voted for him because he was a republican candidate yeah um Wow. And, it, and if he wins again, it will be. You know, Farage has never got close to Parliament, never mind to to power. So yeah, you could, but in a way, we should be reassured that those barriers are there. It's really hard.
0: And how different are these politicians really? Isn't it like you know the the two examples that you're citing? They in a way aren't they just different type of orators, and they're not really well, Trump and Farage. Yeah.
1: I mean, Trump is pretty different. I think. Yeah. Um, I mean, he yeah. So he is. Yeah, he he's unscrupulous and devious, and he's a he's a genius of a certain kind of oratory, of a type that you would recognise going back. But if you'd said to me five years ago Donald Trump could be president of the United States, I would have said it's impossible. It just could not happen. And now it's a it's just a fact. It's it's almost. It's one of those things that you just have to adjust from thinking it's impossible to thinking it's inevitable. You get about 20 minutes to to make yeah. that adjustment. So I still I still some days wake up and think it's not possible, but so he's I I think he's you no, know, he's a sign that if you take over the party, even Trump can win.
0: Do you think it's likely that uh a, a, a more localised like because on the basis of what we've been saying so far even like you know Corbyn's Labour or Trump's Republican Party in the, these in a sense are still quite conventional political machines other than some superficial differences and even in terms of manifesto R- Jeremy Corbyn wouldn't have been considered that radical not that long ago really it's just in a sense of just a marker of how m- much our social contracts have eroded that our attitudes to welfare taxation nationalization have altered and in a way doesn't that tell us that if like there's no or or if the only i sometimes feel david that unless a party is nationalizing railways and nationalizing public institutions and making them more accessible for ordinary people there's no point in having a nation if it isn't doing that what is it like it's just what a flag and a history if it isn't about we have these institutions that provide these resources then what is it doing if it is just operating at the service of bigger more powerful institutions? Yeah, and I
1: think in that short story that the thing that we've come to call democracy mm-hmm. the capacity to deliver those things and genuine public services and public benefits was the key to its success. I mean, it is, it is definitely the case that over the second half of the 20th century, in countries like this one, democracy did deliver for many people real benefits. It, it sort of moved from left to right, but on the whole, it moved towards a sort of social democratic settlement. On mm. that. I mean, certainly during the sort of post-Second World War period. Um, and that was a big part of it. But then in that longer sweep, that's a relatively short period. I mean, that those institutions were able to deliver that. Yes. Um, and it did work. You know, it's sometimes called the 30 glorious years from sort of 47 to, to the mid 70s. It what was the, a
0: bit of an apology for the wars. It was. Like, we yeah. killed quite a lot of you. Have an hospital. It was a bit. Like that.
1: <laughs> and it was also driven by fear. I mean, it was fear. You know, it's the Cold War as well. So it's, like ah. the, you know, you, you, politicians ah. will do a lot when they really think that the worst case scenario is that there's an enemy at the gate. So, and that, that, that's a, I still think there's a sort of legacy there that we are so attached to this thing called representative democracy, because in the living memory of lots of people, including these older people, it really did deliver, you know, it was an amazing thing. I mean, representative democracy, liberal representative democracy, if you were in the right place at the right time, it's the best political system that we have ever had, but, you had to be in the right place at the right time. It's not sure. This, I'm not sure this is still the right time, and I'm not sure that many people were ever in the right place. But it's become the great thing that sort of hangs over us that we have to be really, really worried that we might undo it or unpick it.
0: So you're, what you're saying is is that we're experiencing decline, but one of the natural reactions to that is, oh no, it's going to be replaced by what immediately preceded it or what interrupted it, in you know, i.e. fascism or some other centralised authoritative thing. And we're sort of toying with the idea, aren't we, all of us? That hold on, with all this, with this ability to c- communicate, with this technology, which ultimately, admittedly, rests in the hands of mm, tyrannical giants, every bit as powerful and perhaps as toxic as the you know, state institutions that, that, that they um, collaborate with or run in tandem with. Um, but, that there's a possibility that we could have different types of democracy. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, I think, so so if you think the two things that democracy delivered when it really worked, representative democracy, made people better off, it made their lives better, Mm. and it made them feel like they were heard, like you were listened to, it gives you a voice, so it kind of gives you practical results, and it gives you a sense that your voice counts, even if it's just because you get to vote. And for a period in the second half of the 20th century, putting those two things together was an incredible combination. And now we're living in a world where the results side of it, you know, delivering practical benefit is really under strain. But the voice side of it is kind of enhanced in lots of ways. I mean, people, I think people genuinely feel that the opportunity to be heard is greater than it was. Um, not to get results as a result of being heard, but just you know, to channel your anger, to speak. You know. Communication's been massively decentralized and then above it is this kind of umbrella set of organizations and institutions which are controlling the architecture of the whole yeah. thing. But I don't think we should deny the fact that enhanced voice is pro-democracy in some sense. It's, it's also enhancing some kind of democratic value that if you can get on a platform, find people to hear you. Channel your anger in particular ways, like you say. Find a podcast, find a thing on YouTube where someone like you is saying the things that you believe in. I mean, this is democratic,
0: it is in a sense, David. But I can't help but think that it appeals to sort of one of the not necessarily a metaphor but a, a, a belief that I have that you know, of course, anyone can have a YouTube channel but it's owned by Google, anyone can have a podcast but it's likely on the Apple platform. And that the freedoms that we are afforded are freedoms that do not affect or disrupt the interests of the powerful. The democracy that we have is uh, p- parenthesized with as long as it doesn't affect the interests of the powerful. And there was a brief moment where enough people, as you've described this kind of golden age, where enough people were positively impacted that that was irrelevant because, as you said, the conditions of having a sort of a... uh, the threat of of what could happen if the Cold War was lost, and where I said there was a kind of a sense of debt that you've just said. This nation is definitely real. We want you to go and kill those people from that nation. It's definitely not a made-up thing. And now, the, the sort of luster... Uh, the the threat of the Cold War is gone. They don't, they don't they don't seem to be able to find a threat that functions in the same way as Islam or China or whatever. And uh, but the thing I would like to say um, as, we, uh, as we canter towards a conclusion is that what about people's emotional and spiritual lives? That as you sort of mentioned the 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 shifting taxonomies around left and right, the sense that these categories may no longer be sufficient to describe the political landscape. Uh, Something I think is that people are disconnected and people are unfulfilled that along with democracy, the system by which we organize, there is the sort of the sort of, I would say, the sort of insidious ideology that accompanies it, I would say, is kind of consumerism. That's a sort of palliative that accompanies a, a dying or at least um, in a democracy is like, you know, your freedom to consume these products, your freedom to access this kind of entertainment, and I think these are beginning to be exposed as not necessarily placebos. Perhaps even worse than that, the intoxicants. I feel that, and and uh, you know, you saying again that you know you are in a position to experience regularly the, these young, educated people. When my own interactions with them, and it's not necessarily just university educated in my case, it will be sort of uh, people from different types of background, is that they no longer hold that dream. They are sort of disillusioned. Even the people that, you know, and and I would say most of us that can't envisage what's going to come next have no faith in what's existing in, in in current systems of government because those systems of government are... They are uh, they're atheistic... Not atheistic, that's not the right word. They're sort of materialistic, mechanistic. the ideals are stripped away. Ideals have sort of seemed to be kind of dangerous now in a way. And I feel that people are lacking a certain kind of nutrition, a certain kind, of like, you know, now that nationalism is seen as toxic, globalization is seen as toxic, identity politics and intersectional politics, divisive. You know, like, I think people are yearning for something. I'm not sure quite where it's going to come from, or how it's going to interact with politics.
1: So I do think that um in, in the the sort of success story part of democracy, the, the bit that may be coming to an end now, but for much of my life was still true. That kind of politics is very mechanistic. I mean, it was designed in a way, it's very artificial democratic politics. It's not, there's nothing natural about it. It's politicians performing and going through these kind of artificial ceremonies of elections and everything else. But it was worth it because there was this thought that there was something, there was bad stuff out there. People were on the whole living materially very disadvantaged lives. And as where you put your faith in that machine because you wanted practical results that it was capable of delivering. As the whole world has become more mechanistic, as, as the sort of mechanization of modernity has just crept into all parts of our lives, I think there's an increasing sense that the political machine is just on the side of the machines. And it's not the thing that will protect us from what threatens our ability to live meaningful lives. It's just, it's part of the thing that's colonizing our meaningful lives. Yeah. And I think that's a relatively recent thing again. I, I think it's, um, and I get it. Again, I, I struggle because I, it's not just that I remember the, the earlier bit. I'm still quite attached yeah, to it. Yeah, why is that? I mean, I really believe that you know, there are lots of circumstances in which a well-functioning democratic state is what you need to protect you from some pretty bad scenarios. Um, we, We live in complicated societies where when it goes wrong, when the economy fails, when capitalism runs into trouble, the state is the thing that can get you through. But as it's all become this kind of connected mechanization and we're not quite at artificial intelligence yet, but we're, we're quite close to these different artificial ways of organizing our life, permeating everything. Mm. Politics looks like it's just part of that wider thing. And if once you start to see it like that, it's really hard to have faith. It's really hard to have faith that the machine is going to beat the machine. Um, and so you look for something which has non-mechanical meaning. And I get that.
0: It's like what you're saying about uh, what you said there about like, you know, we recognize that it's a type of ideological machine parliament or it's a sort of a functioning, you know, bureaucratic machine. It's a kind of robot. Yeah. Yeah.
1: These things were designed kind of as robots. They were designed to be, they are artificial decision making machines. Yes. Uh, You feed stuff in people and opinions and votes and information and you get a outcome which is this policy, that policy, this, that. (laughs) Uh, And some of them work well, some of them work badly, but that's what they are. I mean, that's what modern politics has always been. It's been the efficient decision-making machine. Now, if Mm. we're about to enter a world where efficient decision-making machines actually kind of are everywhere, Mm. um, it's hard to have faith in one machine above the others
0: particularly as the uh, you know the, the the sort of the erosion of the authenticity or sort of moral uh, what do I want to say sort of valour of that particular machine has been, has been continually compromised by you know oh, we'll hand over that to the private sector we'll hand over that to this sort of uber national institution you know it's, it's losing its veracity it's losing its sense of honesty and that in a company with which I'd, I'd not heard heard anyone say that before the sense of the the creeping mechanization of all of our lives until our own humanity feels quite cornered Where like and it was something i was trying to get out before when i was saying don't people should be supporting systems that are giving them freedom in their actual lives not you know do you um like this type of sexuality or that type of religion or that type of immigrant or this type you know it's like when you get up what are you going to be doing what does it feel like to be you in the world what are you feeling when you're in your car what are you thinking when you're walking along a street what's it like to be you and because, you know, like when in like you know, is like Guy Debord talking about like, you know, like now when you're, at, you know, you are a worker, then you are a consumer. Like, where is the bit where you are a human being? And that's the thing that I th- feel like. And that doesn't necessarily, even though I'm a sort of, I suppose, to a degree, a religious person, it needn't come from that perspective because i think a humanitarian would see things in much the same way when is your essential humanity being expressed when are you in communion with the people you love how are you and i recognize the necessity for state when i imagine sort of vigilantism or the total decline of society or I remember when the battle little that little petrol crisis for a moment and then you realized well oh, fucking hell this thing's fragile yeah, or, or, i mean i don't like to be
1: like look at venezuela now i mean you can see when a political society breaks down it is it's grim.
0: Is it? What's happening
1: in Venezuela? Yeah. It's it's grim. I mean, it, you know, it, people it's the, fighting in the streets. Guns. Yeah, it's the failure of the state. And there mm. are lots of places in the world where where states fail, life becomes much much harder. Our state is not going to fail, I don't think. And the challenge, I agree with you. It's more, how do we humanise it um, rather than thinking that it's the thing that will protect the human. I mean, it's a possibility that it's the thing that actually. It has, has somehow lost its connection to the human because it's surrounded by things like it, corporations and other things, which are also robots and machines. Yes. You know, we, we already live in a world that's dominated by artificial. Already,
0: it doesn't matter. What are we waiting yeah, for? Yeah,
1: exactly. And and those are the ones that are going to kill us apart from anything else. I mean, it's not like the, the killer robots are going to kill us. Yeah, states and corporations have the power. That's
0: us trying to just dramatize it. It's easier to think of a flesh-eating robot, apparently, which already exists—one that can fuel itself on human <laughs> But like, um, but like, my yes, you're right that uh, it's already happening. That probably even what preceded this type of power was like, you know, what are the sort of in, in indigenous beliefs that we have as human beings? That you know, like, sort of in even in pre-agricultural societies, when we'd have gone right, there's seventy-five of us. You do the hunting. You do this. I'll do that. You know, like that we would have nominated so some titemic. Idol or some natural phenomena to represent ultimate power or power beyond us, and then increasingly our religious systems have reflected the means by which we've got food. You know, sort of agricultural gods replacing the hunting gods, you know, ideological gods. You know, 20 centuries later, replacing the the the, the, the sort of single gods that, that accompanied uh, sort of nationhood and and. Now So we've always had it in us, the idea that we nominate something to be powerful. And it just, I suppose, is an obvious trend that that thing will move further and further away from most people as the, it becomes one landscape, as the world becomes a single landscape, more and more of that power will be. And I suppose the reason that we're all so fascinated with the internet is it's a r- modern phenomena so we, and it's happened so quickly so we can see how, oh, look, there's going to be this thing, the internet, where we're all going to be uh, be whoever we want to be. Oh, fucking hell, it's owned by five people. <laughs> when did that happen? Yeah. But, uh, so I think
1: you know, the big challenge is that the democratic state was that thing that we built but that we told ourselves this is the one that we controlled. So it's not like the, the god, it's not like you know those other idols. So yeah, it is a kind of idol, but we still are persuaded, I think deep down, that it's the one that we built for us yeah. um, and that we've lived with it because it's the machine that we control. And I think you know, recognizing the ways in which we've lost control of that machine is really hard because we did control it for a while and there are periods where we do regain control over it. But... There's a real danger that we kind of cling on to that illusion way past its selling point.
0: When you say we, you know, it assumes a kind of a majority, doesn't it? Like, sort of like, say, for example, if you take a good example, with me not educating this kind of stuff, but my guess is that immediately post war, there's like, right, we're going to p- properly invest in you lot. Thanks for that. Like, you know, that, now that was a sort of a we moment, wasn't and, it? Uh,
1: yeah. And, you know, the other, it's a depressing thought. War is a huge part of that story. You don't, you know, part of the contingency of it, part of the, relative brevity of that success story is it was predicated on two world wars. And if you strip the world wars out of the story of the 20th century, you do not get the democratic success story. So what you said is completely central. So let's assume that there isn't going to be another war like that. There's we, no need for democracy like that. We, yeah, we, we, we're not going to be able to tell ourselves that story ever again.
0: Yeah, like that, that. There's we're a good country. That's a bad country. And we
1: we did this together. We genuinely did it together. And now the thing that got us through this is going to deliver for us. Yeah, it's not. That's not coming back.
0: In a way, though, David, I would argue that that it is similar to sort of as a paradigm. It's like saying there is a loving God and the loving God cares for us. There is an England. We are England. England loves our Britain or whatever, and. You, what it feels like now is like that in this materialistic, post secular society, we can't look to nation and increasingly anything to say that this is the, what unites us and bonds us. And and even the idea of our shared humanity is becoming complex on both the left and right. On the left, be, you know, because of various forms of divisionist identity politics. On the right, because they've always required... <laughs> <laughs> For the usual reasons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't need to go into that. And then, like, uh, so, you know, well, that's the other reason why... I'm like partly of the reason I feel like we need smaller decentralized systems is one the optim- my optimistic belief that human beings can look after themselves and one another but probably only in small groups because otherwise we are subject to cultural influences That we just don't like and can't get our heads around, Uh, and I feel that in a a a world where we have that kind of access to information now, there's there's going to be always going to be a reason for enmity, largely irrelevant enmity, because I feel that it's mostly abstract, and you know, in the case of say immigration, and heightened precisely, you know, to to create further division. So I feel like that if you went well, all right, if the people of Gray's Essex just govern Gray's Essex and the people of Darlington govern and, like, and whatever kind of confederacy we have among ourselves and whatever dominant ideals we have on a bloody federal or national level when we can agree that we want sort of roads to be maintained and that we want some kind of police force and army don't we you know like I guess that's I can't see how we can maintain 60 million strong groups and 300 million strong groups when there's just increasing, the, the youth said yourself, haven't you fractured, fragmented society.
1: Yeah, but the the is still going to be there. So, I mean, that's the other thing. You can't, I mean, I'm enough of a sort of, I think, political realist to think that there's always a danger with the thought that you can kind of locate it somewhere and take the enmity out. You've got to, and some of the enmity will, You can localise it, you can decentralise it, and that would, no question, give people much more of a sense of shared belonging. But some of it is going to move up and away as well. And it is possible that future that I mentioned, which is both more decentralised, but also in some sense, some of it has just gone. Um, It's gone anyway, it's already happened. It's gone anyway, but we've got to recognise that the managing of of human conflict, which there'll always be the potential for human conflict, we won't be able to do it all... By localizing it, decentralizing it, and, decentralizing around, eating it. Vegetables. and uh, yeah, that's it's still going to be a political world.
0: I know. I think you're probably right, unless there's some terrible. Cataclysm. (laughs) (laughs) He says cheerily. (laughs) We can't go out on that terrible cataclysm. Yeah, that that when you said it the first time, that idea of like we we should recognise that there are something, but that's long been the case. I suppose something like the Iraq War was where for a brief moment that came into focus. Like, oh God, a minute, this is what's this about again? Like, why are we doing this, and how is this democratic? And you know,
1: but so. I think you and I agree that the the threat at the moment is that we're pulling both the things that have gone and the things that we could root in our our lived experience are both being pulled to this middle level of the democratic state and its institutions and elections and so on, and somehow we've got to let the things find their level, and at the moment everything is still at that level, and it's not working
0: yes, yes. Well, so, more che- <laughs> cheery note. <laughs> I don't know Didn't how say we say cataclysm. The, the problem, yeah. Like yours is better than my cataclysm <laughs> <clears throat> ending. At least yours wasn't a call for an apocalypse to cleanse. No, I'm st- not.
1: Uh, it's a yeah. It's a it's a separating out. We're in that process, um, but our minds aren't there yet.
0: Can't you tell us something optimistic about you know being in that university? Isn't it jolly or something? <laughs> It's quite nice (laughs) and they're all
1: these young people and they genuinely genuinely believe that and i hear it all the time that people like me can't see it and i'm aware i probably can't see it and the thing that i can't see is what an open future looks like
0: yeah i suppose maybe it's hard at my age to see the future open
1: (sighs) yeah but we we try don't we
0: perhaps that's right that hold on a sec i think we have engineered a Potentially, to technocrats that we are uh, uh, engineered a, a potential positive ending David and, and, and this is it, perhaps we have to be comfortable with the idea of an open future, the idea that we don't have the solutions that they won't be entirely resourced from the past but perhaps I suppose that for me I need to believe in, that there are, in perennialism in some sense that there are certain values that human beings can return to and I, I suppose many of them have been popularised through e.g. E- e- Christianity, like the principle of fraternity and solidarity and service and sacrifice. That's why I continually look at I suppose, spiritual ideologies, as uh, you know, to see how these things can intersect with the way that we govern, with the way that we are governed, with the way that we organize. How can these principles influence, you know, because otherwise, you know, if we're not, if there's no recourse to fairness, then what is it we're trying to build? And I think that's the problem that we're confronted with.
1: And and I think in that, it's to see the political future as open that's the challenge. I think most people do have that sense that there's something that should connect us across time. But we've got that frozen feeling about politics and we, we've sort of forgotten that the future is more open than the past because the past has happened. We sort of think that our future is some mirroring of the past yes. and, it's, and it's not. And in politics, embracing an open future is the thing that we do need to do.
0: It has the sort of blind optimism that could become a political slogan. Embracing an open future. Let's embrace the open future together. Doesn't, it sounds good. doesn't really mean anything. <laughs> doesn't really commit but to anything. If we hired Steve Bannon, he could get us on that slogan. He would. He don't mention any of your progressive liberal beliefs if you have them, because Steve is not pro those. No, he's not so keen. <laughs> but, but he clear. likes a good slogan. Uh, slogans, yes. <laughs> Diversity, sadly, no. <laughs> oh lovely hey I've actually really I felt like I was very very you know those machines that push uh, 2p coins over the edge down the arcades I felt like I was being information was being pushed to me in manageable sizes wave after wave of yeah that makes sense yeah so I was literally learning so I think well, that's great. precisely I hope, what I
1: hope it was in the spirit of what you do
0: thank you very much it was great, yeah. great. cheers Good. David thank you um,
1: yeah these conversations matter
0: I think so Well, thanks for listening to that. I hope you feel fired up with crazy optimism about how we're going to... Well, I mean, it's nice, isn't it, to have like an academic understanding of the political situation from a Cambridge professor. What do you want for nothing? Um. remember to let me know what you thought of this episode on Instagram that's true at Russell Brand or tweet me at Rusty Rockets with a hashtag under the skin why not have a quick listen to previous episodes like Dia Khan, that was an amazing episode, the happy pair, God love them lads, Sharon Salzberg episode 17 from season 1 talking about the, I think it was yeah, Buddhism and meditation, she was emanating great spiritual power and Frankie Boyle, that was a brilliant episode from uh, season 1 Remember, I'm going to do some more live shows in LA. Look at russellbrand.com for more information. Get Mentors, if you're in America, you can get that now off Amazon or from a local bookshop if you care about that sort of thing and you're not a crazy, wild nihilist detached from reality. Also, have a look at Rebirth on Netflix. And remember to sign up for Luminary if you're a a non-US listener. Remember, you can get three months free with our special deal. And if you are a US listener, go to luminary.link forward slash russell. For more info, remember that I love you.